0: Black Friday Bonus, Falling Prices by Gwynne Guilford. Then Holman Jenkins Jr. has an article, A-listers try to put lipstick on the Hollywood strike. Josh Zumbrum wrote, How many people do you know? About 600. Philip Goff has, Meditation can reveal a sacred reality. And we'll follow that up with an article by Jason Gay should we all be walking backward? These articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first one, Black Friday bonus falling prices. Holiday shoppers scouring Black Friday deals are in for a pleasant surprise. Many popular gifts are cheaper now than they were a year ago when inflation was still near its 40-year peak. Prices for TVs, smartphones, toys, sofas, and other items that often get wrapped up in bows have all dropped since last year's holiday season. There are several reasons. Consumers are spending more on experiences such as travel and concerts, reducing demands for goods. Store shelves also are amply stocked, thanks to a lessening of the pandemic era supply disruptions that triggered shortages last year. More broadly, overall inflation has declined significantly as the economy shows signs of cooling from slower job growth to sluggish retail spending last month. Retailers such as Walmart say an era of price hikes is fading. Adobe, which tracks online sales through its analytics arm, predicts holiday discounting will hit record highs as retailers struggle for the uncertain outlook for consumer spending. It forecasts that toys, electronics, TVs, and furniture will see the most aggressive price cuts. Electronics are a favorite for post-Thanksgiving deals and this year isn't likely to disappoint. Smartphone prices were down 12% in October from a year earlier, according to the Labor Department. TV prices were down 9.4% in the same period. Audio equipment, speakers, earbuds, headphones, and the like, also were cheaper from a year earlier. Computers make that list too. Adobe predicts that Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, will have the best deals on TVs, while Saturday will be the best time to buy computers. Home Goods. Home good prices soared during the pandemic's nesting phase, but have since fallen back to earth. Prices for bed sheets, towel sets, and other linens slid nearly 10 percent in October from a year earlier. Prices for living room furniture, lamps, and wall decor have fallen since last year as well. Cyber Monday, November 27th, should have the deepest discounts on furniture, while Tuesday, November 28th, should be ideal for snapping up appliances, according to Adobe. Sports and Recreation. Prices for sporting goods and toys are down as well. Toy prices fell nearly 4% in October from a year earlier. Prices for sporting goods were down 1.2% in the same period. That includes kayaks, bicycles, all-terrain vehicles, camping gear, and pickleball equipment. Adobe predicts that the best bargains for toys will be on the Sunday after Thanksgiving and for sporting goods on Monday, December 4th. Getting there. Transportation costs have dropped since last year, making it potentially cheaper to travel. Gasoline prices were down nearly 11% in mid-November from a year earlier, according to Opus, an energy data and analytics provider. Airline fares were down 13% in October from a year earlier, paying for it. The worst sticker shock this holiday season might be in the fine print of financing terms. To tame inflation, the Federal Reserve pushed interest rates to their highest level in 22 years, which in turn has lifted consumer borrowing rates to punishing highs with credit card rates above 20%. That means shoppers planning to stuff sockings on credit might just find themselves paying more in the long run than they would have a few years ago. And now A-listers try to put lipstick on the Hollywood strike. Now that the Hollywood actor strike has been settled, Meryl Streep reportedly has proposed that union head Fran Drescher run for president of the United States. At least that's how the former TV nanny tells it in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter. And why not? The first lesson of politics is, no matter what happens, declare victory. The joyful yipping and clapping emanating from sag Astra is why they call them actors. But the audience also has a role known in the trade as willing suspension of disbelief. In this case, it will be quite a job to believe the actors' strike was a success. The union demanded a 20% raise over a three-year period. The studios offered 13%. The end result was 15.75%, a number that seems like it should have been reachable without a strike, perhaps over a second cup of coffee. The union also won protections related to artificial intelligence, a subject hardly mentioned until the Guild needed a MacGuffin to inflate the stakes for news reporters. These protections are so reasonable, actors may already possess them under common law. Actors must approve any digital replicas of themselves. They can expect to be paid extra if a replica is used to create new action, not if simply used to tidy up a scene for which the actor was already paid. Again, if you believe Ms. Drescher, George Clooney personally exclaimed to her his awe and wonder at the union's success in extracting contract gains it values at $1 billion. But this is gross. The proper measure is net. How much did the strikers gain that they wouldn't have gained anyway, minus the cost of the strike itself? Here the outcome doesn't look so good. In New York City alone, a state agency reports the strike cost 17,000 jobs and $1.3 billion in income, more than the deal's benefit over three years. Nationally, the United States Labor Department found a loss of 45,000 jobs in film production from May to October. The Milken Institute estimates that Los Angeles area workers will lose $6 billion in income and more if delayed projects are permanently cancelled, but a circle is complete as far as this column is concerned. Miss Streep may now be ready to carry a triumphant nanny on her shoulders to the White House. As I noted in July, she signed a letter with other celebrities accusing the guild of squishiness and practically demanding a strike. And embarrassed Miss Drescher, she had just proclaimed that talks with the studios were proceeding swimmingly, overnight reclothed herself as a militant. Alas, having established their working-class bona fides by hitting send, the A-listers had a second epiphany. The strike they championed was proving a disaster, benefiting nobody, causing only job losses and production shutdowns. Hollywood was already overproducing shows and losing billions. Union leverage was close to nil. Some studio executives even welcomed the strike as a way to cut costs. On a Zoom call, Miss Streep, Mr. Clooney, and others urged Miss Dresser to settle. She did, and the Zoomers apparently now are expediting their own role by portraying the strike as the greatest win since Waterloo. The outcome makes a telling contrast with the overlapping walkout by auto workers in Detroit. Unlike the Hollywood strikers, the United Auto Workers scored a genuine bundle of what economists call rents, contract terms sufficiently generous to cripple the long-term prospects of their employers. The UAW unquestionably delivered for its members at a cost. With wages 60% higher than their non-union domestic and foreign competitors, the Detroit companies will continue their slow wastage into pickup truck companies whose finances depend entirely on a 25 percent import tariff opposed on foreign pickups by LBJ back in 1964. The future will belongs to the transplants and Tesla and their workers. Still, credit the union for a deal that left at least one party better off, which is more than you can say for the Hollywood strike. Sadly, for some on the left and right, these outcomes should gut a current fantasy. This is the idea that a return to private sector unionization, especially in manufacturing, can be a new, old model of middle-class prosperity. Yes, if you can do away with non-union competition and technological innovation, as well as overlook the cost to consumers and other workers whose opportunities are reduced. But that's not the world we live in or that our policies make possible. Income inequality is their beloved slogan, but it's a poor way of framing any societal problem if you're not one of those people more concerned that some are rich than that some are poor. For everyone else, opportunity and helping outfit people to benefit from opportunity is still the formula that works. Now, how many people do you know about 600? You've probably never counted how many people you know. Well, now you don't have to. Tyler McCormick has worked it out, around 600, or more precisely, 611, according to estimates by McCormick, a professor in the statistics and sociology departments at the University of of Washington. That's a national average, but a Cormac can actually compute an estimate for you or anyone. His technique is a fascinating illustration of the power of statistics to illuminate society, not just how many acquaintances the average person has, but the number of homeless and other hard-to-reach populations. There are different degrees of how well you know people. This particular measure is a broad one asked how many close friends they have. About half of Americans say three or fewer, according to a 2021 survey. The British anthropologist Robin Dunbar, drawing on studies of the brain sizes of humans and other primates, estimates a person can only maintain about 150 relationships. The so-called Dunbar number, he has said, applies to quality relationships, not to acquaintances. A Pew Research study found adults on Facebook had an average of 338 friends on the site. The number of people you know, without considering them friends, is probably much larger. McCormick's definition, that you know them and they know you by sight or by name, that you could contact them, that they live within the United States, and that there has been some contact in the past two years. This broader circle of acquaintances, as opposed to friends, matters quite a bit. The sociologist Mark Granovetter posited in a 1973 paper, The Strength of Weak Ties, that casual connections and acquaintances are more helpful when it comes to job hunting than close friendships. LinkedIn demonstrated this with a five-year experience in which its people-you-may-know algorithm randomly suggested that some users connect to others with strong ties they had overlapping careers or contacts, and suggested that others connect to users with only peripheral connections. Sure enough, the latter group was more likely to find a new job. Weak ties are tricky to measure. Who sits around and enumerates how many people they know? McCormick, as well as Matthew Salganick of Princeton and Tian Zeng of Columbia, his co-authors of the paper that introduced the estimate of how many people we know devised a clever workaround. They asked respondents how many people they know named Michael, Stephanie, James, or nine other common names. There are more than three million Americans named Michael, around 1% of the population, according to the Social Security Administration. So Michael's should also make up 1% of your acquaintances you know eight Michaels, you probably know about 800 people. Repeating the exercise with a dozen names yields a series of estimates that can be used to refine the answer. This approach was pioneered by Christopher McCarthy at the University of Florida and co-authors in 2001. In addition to names, respondents were asked if they knew anyone who is Native American, a postal worker on kidney dialysis, Widow, diabetic, and so on. McCormick focused only on names since you're less likely to know your acquaintance's job, ethnicity, or if they have diabetes. The real power of this fun little estimate is how it represents a cutting edge statistical technique to shine new light on our society. Asking about all those Michaels was originally part of an effort to measure hard to reach populations, such as the homeless. Standard techniques, such as a phone survey, are useless. But what if you ask a large people, a large sample of people how many homeless they know? If you can estimate the overall size of respondents' social networks, then you can use their responses to estimate the share of the population that is homeless. In recent years, researchers have used the technique to estimate things that are otherwise difficult or impossible to measure, such as the number of sex workers, the frequency of the use of performance-enhancing drugs, or drug users at risk of HIV, or even religious identification. The technique has shortcomings. As with most opinion polls, there is no way to verify whether the answers are correct in the way population samples can be benchmarked to a comprehensive census because there is no formal census of one's acquaintances. The relevance of a particular name or characteristic might vary widely among demographic cohorts. People named Michael tend to be younger than people named Robert or James. Traditional Western European names might not be useful for people who don't live in primarily European communities. Many of the behaviors that make someone hard to reach in the first place might also be unknown to their acquaintances. You wouldn't necessarily necessarily know if a distant acquaintance sometimes used drugs. So researchers must try to account for how many of a drug user's acquaintances would know about his or her drug use. McCormick and other statisticians are still working to improve the technique, such as figuring out the ideal names to cover different races and ages. The numbers aren't perfect. Still, these relatively weak acquaintances are our best window into the job market, the breadth of our social ties, and many of our most pressing social questions. And now, meditation can reveal a sacred reality. When you look around you, you feel as though you're looking directly at the world, seeing things as they are in and of themselves. But a little reflection renders it obvious that we experience reality in a highly culturally conditioned way. This is perhaps most obvious when we reflect on the experience of language. When you hear someone say to you, get out, the building's on fire, you can't help hearing those words as meaning what they do. But suppose you're standing next to a Chinese speaker who doesn't speak English. They would just hear meaningless sounds. In a sense, that would be closer to the truth, to experiencing what's really out there in the world. After all, The sounds themselves are just vibrations in the air. They don't contain any intrinsic meaning. And yet, when you know a language well, you experience sounds as meaningful. This particular form of culturally conditioned experience can be interrupted, at least a little bit, simply by persistently attending to a specific word. If you say the word bread to yourself numerous times, it starts to lose its meaning you find yourself experiencing meaningless foams rather than a meaningful word. This simple game is a useful way of appreciating one of the major purposes of meditation, using persistent attention to break cultural conditioning. The week before I got married, I spent some time in a monastery to spiritually prepare, spending a few hours every morning meditating. When you first start meditating it feels like you're just attending to your breathing in an entirely passive way however after you've focused for a long enough period it starts to become apparent that you're not merely receiving what's there to be experienced in subtle ways you're projecting onto the experience an idea of breathing reflecting on this personal discovery that i'm sure countless other people have discovered for themselves fundamentally altered my perspective on reality. It really brought home to me the extent to which we're doing this all the time without noticing, projecting onto the world an idea of it rather than just experiencing what's there. It may even be impossible for us to experience sensory qualities, the feel of the breath, the redness of the tomato, without projecting onto them. If meditation gently chisels away at our conditioned way of experiencing reality, psychedelic drugs hack off huge huge chunks in one go. This can be terrifying, but done carefully, it can also be liberating and enlightening. Many psychedelic experiences are hard to communicate, but here's a small example of how they can break cultural conditioning. I remember watching the BBC news while on a psychedelic and being struck vividly by the absurdity of the dramatic music in the credit sequence, drumming up excitement in preparation for hearing factual information. Previously, I'd been used to this. It had become for me a natural and inevitable part of how things are. The psychedelics simply removed the cultural conditioned ways of hearing that made me experience the music as natural and and inevitable and brought me a little closer to seeing things how they really are. This characterization of spiritual advancement might seem unduly negative. What's the point of just breaking cultural conditioning? After all, we wouldn't be able to live normal lives if we broke through all of our usual ways of experiencing the world and just experienced sensory qualities without any cultural meaning. From a spiritual perspective, the big positive attraction is that many people who have made significant progress in breaking through their conditioning testify that there is a higher form of consciousness underlying our culturally conditioned forms of experience. We call such states of awareness mystical experiences. In a mystical experience, one seems to directly encounter a life or living presence that exists in all things some call it God. To stay neutral on metaphysical questions, the American philosopher William James simply called it the More. If you're a materialist, this experience may, must be a delusion. According to materialism, the fundamental story of reality is the purely quantitative one we get from physics, with no living presence at the fundamental level of reality. But James argued that there is a pernicious double standard involved in demanding evidence that mystical experiences correspond to reality when we don't, and indeed can't, require proof that our ordinary sensory experiences correspond to reality. Imagine you wake up at the bottom of a deep, dark hole with total amnesia. You have no idea who you are or how you got there. A voice from the top of the hole is speaking to you, explaining what you need to do to get out. Do you have any reason to think the voice is telling you the truth? Without access to your memory, you have nothing to go on in assessing the credibility of the speaker. They could be telling the truth, but they could equally be lying. Nonetheless, you have a strong, pragmatic reason to trust the voice. After all, what else are you going to do? This is a good metaphor for life. Each person finds themselves stuck in the hole of their own conscious mind with no means of escape from its boundaries. But from within this prison, we find ourselves subject to sensory experiences that tell us about a world outside of our minds. My visual experience right now tells me there is a table in front of me with a laptop on it. I cannot climb out of my conscious mind to check whether my experiences correspond to the real world. This could be caused by a physical world around me, but they could equally be delusions created by the evil computers running the matrix. I nonetheless have solid pragmatic grounds for trusting my experiences. After all, what else am I going to do? Could mystical experiences be delusions? Of course they could, but then so could our sensory experiences. In a particular case, we can test the reality of our senses, but we can do so only by using our senses thus rendering circular any attempt to prove that sensory experience as a whole puts us in touch with objective reality. All knowledge of the reality outside of our minds is rooted in leaps of faith, in decisions to trust what experience tells us about reality, and there's no good reason to think that faith in one's mystical experiences is any less rational than faith in one's sensory experiences. Mystical experiences are simply more powerful forms of what the German philosopher and theologian Rudolf Otto called numinous experiences, in which one has a brief sense of the awe-inspiring sacred depth of reality. Through meditation and simple living, through engagement with nature and things of beauty, through persistent effort to break one's conditioned way of experiencing reality, Each of us can become a little more deeply acquainted with the more, and in doing so, make reality a little bit better. Now let's follow that up with an article by Jason Gay. Should we all be walking backward? Sorry, not doing it. I'm not going to walk backward. The other day I listened to a clever BBC podcast, Just One Thing with Michael Mosley that discuss the benefits of walking backward. Apparently, there are far more upsides to reverse periambulation than I'd previously considered. It's good for the lower back. It's helpful for our hamstrings. It exercises all sorts of muscles we don't deploy with ordinary, you know, walking. Balance improves. It may even help with anxiety and boost memory, like eating a bowl of cheese puffs while watching TV does. It all sounded legitimate, backed by science and careful study. Walking backward has been used in physical therapy forever, Mosley said. When I first heard about this, I was genuinely intrigued that something so simple and frankly weird could have such a big effect, said Mosley. Seems incredible, but I'm out. A man needs a line. I'm a person who is easily susceptible to self-help purchases and lifestyle rearrangements a sucker is another term for what I am. If you tell me the only thing that stands between me and infinite happiness is reading The Joy of Cooking while wearing a football helmet and standing in a cold shower for 20 minutes, I will read The Joy of Cooking while wearing a football helmet and standing in a cold shower for 20 minutes, or at least one minute. Over the years, I have tried different diets, new exercise techniques, massage disciplines, and sleep habits. I squat, I plank, I kettleball, I curl up on a couch and watch a depressing number of New York Jet games. Each life adjustment usually works for a while, but then it plateaus out, and then I begin looking for the next trick. So yes, I am probably the type of person who would listen to a podcast about the art of walking backward and start to experience experiment and experience with walking backward. But I can't get all the way there. I'm worried about safety. What happens if I'm walking backward alone? I don't know what's behind me. My back beeper does not beep, beep, beep. I don't have a rear view mirror. I don't even do well when I do have a rear view mirror. Ask my mechanic. I'm worried people will laugh at me. That's vain, but it's true. I don't want my neighbors to look out the window, point and laugh, and say, there goes that idiot again. Same goes for the gym. I worry I'll show up at the office and brag about walking backward. It'll be worse than when I started cycling. Walking backward is something I'll save for Thanksgiving, when I duck into the kitchen and discover nobody has started doing the dishes. All right, fine, I'm going to try it. Give me a couple of days. A couple of days pass. So it's not as crazy as it sounds. You're supposed to start small. A minute here, two minutes. You're not supposed to start walking backward from California to Istanbul, though that's been done. You need to find a flat, safe, controlled environment, maybe an indoor hallway. Outdoors, you may want a walking backward buddy who can scream and tell you you're about to walk backward off the edge of the Grand Canyon. If they don't tell you, they are not your buddy. It's too early to claim any life alteration. I haven't done this long enough to make it a habit, but I get what people are talking about. I feel leg muscles I don't normally feel. My lower back doesn't feel like a 21 years old but it doesn't hurt me either. I don't know if my memory is enhanced, but walking backward does make me concentrate because it's not a natural movement yet. Wait until I get good at this, I'll try everything backward, even this count. Started never I wish you're going your. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.